Hello, and welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today, we're going to head to the U.S. Virgin Islands and learn a little bit about voodoo and mental health. I'd like to clarify that I know very little about voodoo, and I'm certainly not an expert. Most of what I'm going to share with you today is from my research. I'm sure I'll get some of the pronunciation of some of the new-to-me words wrong, so please forgive me. Let's go ahead and dive in. Voodoo in the Caribbean is more common than most people, especially visitors, realize. We've seen it in pirate movies, including Pirates of the Caribbean. Voodoo is a fairly modern religion, which grew out of slavery of the Africans in the 17th and 18th century. Its roots are based in oppression, and it was a unifying force for slaves in the Caribbean islands. When planters in the Caribbean bought slaves, they made an effort to buy Africans from several different tribes or cultures. They did this because they wanted it to be more difficult for the slaves to rise up against their oppressors. They spoke different languages and couldn't communicate clearly. And rise up they definitely wanted to do because working in the sugar plantation was pretty much a death sentence. Early on, slaves would live less than three years on average, and their living conditions never improved during that time. The horrible conditions were an excellent reason for the slaves to band together, so they began to meld their religions. During this time in the 17th and 18th century, religion and medicine were interlinked. Europeans blamed sickness on witchcraft or things like bad air or having too much blood. At the same time, the emerging voodoo priests attributed sickness to ghosts or spirits. These ghosts or spirits could be used to do bad or good. The bad spirits were sometimes called jumbies, dumpy, or zombies. There are several different types of jumbies. One is called a chural, which is said to be the spirit of a woman who died in childbirth. She roams the world at night, searching for a baby to take with her to the spirit realm. She tends to haunt pregnant women, newborn babies, and very young children, and is said to cause miscarriages or sudden death in infancy. A second is called a sapin. She's also known as the snake woman. She's a beautiful woman who attracts many men. She has a tattoo of a cobra on her back, and when the moon is full, her tattoo comes alive and bites the tongue of the man she's with. The bite brings a fatal curse to the man who will die from sudden illness or an accident within a day or two. A third is called a Masakura man. He's a large, hairy creature and taller than an average man with sharp teeth. Picture Bigfoot, except he likes to live in rivers and in the water, and he likes boaters. He'll capsize any boat he encounters and eat its occupants. There are many more types of jumbies, but generally a jumbie is the spirit of a dead person and it's typically an evil one. They always bring bad luck or death to whoever crosses their path. And the only way to prevent a newly dead person from becoming a jumbie is to cut their head off. Belief in jumbies and evil spirits is common in voodoo practice today, and most voodoo is harmless. However, in today's case, it wasn't. I do want to give you a warning that this episode is going to be pretty gory and there is mention of cruelty to animals, so if that's not something you want to deal with today, please come back for the next episode. On March 2, 1988, just before 7 a.m., Genevieve Lewis, age 53, walked out of her house, which was located on the eastern tip of St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. 
She was born on the French island of Saint-Pierre, off the coast of Newfoundland, where she lived for the first 26 years of her life. But in 1961, she visited St. Thomas, fell in love with the place, and decided to stay. She got a job there managing a beach club, and four years later, she met a fishing boat captain who she fell in love with and married. They had two daughters, who were fully grown by 1988. One had become a theater stylist on Broadway, and the other was studying in Paris. Genevieve's life hadn't been easy in the mid-80s. She suffered from a cranial aneurysm in 1986 that nearly took her life, and part of her recovery involved taking a walk at Vesset Beach Bay every morning. She would almost always take her dog with her. He was a Newfoundland retriever named Baudelaire. Another man named Steve Cornish, 29 years old and from Lansing, Michigan, started his walk at about the same time. He chose to walk along the dirt pathway that led from Cabrito Point to Vesset Bay Beach. He wasn't a visitor to St. Thomas either. He'd been living on the island for several years. He'd come to visit an uncle who lived on St. Thomas and fell in love with windsurfing and decided to stay. He was a natural athlete who became an excellent windsurfer. He competed and won several competitions. His home was actually miles from Vesset Bay, but he had visited his uncle the night before and chose to spend the night. This was super convenient for him because he had a job nearby that he could walk to the next day. That morning, Steve Cornish was running late for work, so he decided to take a shortcut across Vesset Bay Beach. He was a landscaper, and the job had only required some pruning shears, which he carried with him as he walked the beach. In 1988, Vesset Bay was mostly underdeveloped. It had beautiful palm trees, sea grapes, century plants, and cacti bordering the beach, but further back from the ocean lay long, thick, jungle-like undergrowth. If you stay out of the undergrowth and on the beach, you'd see a long stretch of sand which was perfect for early morning strolls. Typically, the ocean here was calm and nice for swimming. Calm enough that seagrass would often roll in with the sea and cover the lower part of the beach. With it would come treasures like sea glass, little crabs, and other small marine wildlife. Of course, trash and less desirable junk washed up as well. There would often be plenty to look at if you were in the mood to stroll along. It would be a great place to find peace and quiet, except for the sound of the ocean rhythmically washing in and out. At 7.22 a.m., a phone call comes into police headquarters in Charlotte, Amalia. A police officer answers, and a female caller sounds panicked as she tells the officer that she just saw a man up on Vesset Bay Beach hacking away at a body with a machete. Keep in mind, this was a time before cell phones. Shocked, the officer passes the information along to his superior, Captain Raymond Hinman. The captain dispatches officers to the scene immediately. Lights and sirens light the sky and blare in everyone's eardrums as police cars converge on the beach. Once on site, the police officers find the body of a white female lying in the sand. She's been dismembered, eviscerated and decapitated. Her head was missing. Close by, they found the dismembered body of a large black dog. A woman carefully came walking up to the officers. She told a story about how she was walking along the edge of the water when she came face to face with a naked man who was carrying a machete. This would scare anyone, so she avoided him and circled around him, giving him plenty of space. She then kept walking along the beach until she came to the body of a headless woman laying in the sand. 
This woman was a neighbor of Genevieve Lewis, but perhaps luckily she never recognized the mutilated remains of her friend. The woman was so scared she ran to hide and find a phone. She stayed hidden until the officers arrived. Despite the trauma she was experiencing, she was able to hold herself together and gave a very clear description of the naked man she had seen. He was of medium height, somewhere in his thirties with a scraggly beard and missing front teeth. He was a black man with a darker complexion and a medium build to his body. When police captain Celestino White arrived on the scene, he secured the beach and established a search area. He had to act fast because the suspect had escaped on foot and could have been hiding anywhere near the beach. Or maybe he even swam out into the water and climbed aboard one of the dozens of sailboats or motorboats that were anchored just off the shore. It was entirely possible that the killer could have slipped away unnoticed and could have hopped onto a ferry, taking it to the island of St. John. Then he could have hidden anywhere on the mountainous, undeveloped, and mostly uninhabited island. In all reality, he could have escaped to any number of surrounding islands. He could have gone to an entirely different country, possibly even to the islands of Tortola or Virgin Gorda in the neighboring British Virgin Islands. If so, he would escape U.S. jurisdiction entirely. A helicopter was called in to watch and identify boats leaving the area. Officers and forensic technicians were taking measurements and snapping pictures, while other officers were looking for witnesses and questioning onlookers. A crowd was beginning to gather near the scene of the crime. A few hundred feet away from the first body, an officer found the body of a white male at the edge of a dirt path leading from Cabrito Point to Vesset Bay Beach. Things were getting freakier at this point, with two dead bodies laying mutilated there. Genevieve Lewis's husband had gone to work at a nearby marina. It wasn't long at all before the Coconut Telegraph, or local gossip, reached him. He heard that something bad was going on up at Vesset Bay. He asked around, wondering what it was, and someone mentioned a body being found on the beach. He knew his wife had driven to that beach to walk Baudelaire, and he was really worried, so he drove over to investigate, but police wouldn't let him walk onto the scene. He wouldn't be denied, though, so he went back to the marina, boarded his boat, and made his way to the beach from the water. He set his anchor and waded ashore. Standing on the shoreline, he saw his car covered in blood and that's when he knew his wife and best friend had been lost to him. The officers saw the shock and horror on his face. They allowed him access to the beach. I can't believe they did this. But in a state of shock and astonishment and disbelief, he stared at the body of a white female, headless and unidentifiable except for his wife's wedding ring, engagement ring, and wristwatch. With an event as terrifying as this was, it didn't take long for word to spread even further. Steve Cornish's uncle also heard about the commotion at the beach. He walked there and was able to identify his nephew as the dead white male. Witnesses kept showing up and giving the investigators vital information. Another woman said she saw a naked black man walking down the beach with a machete that he kept tapping against his leg. Her description was the same as the one that had been given to police earlier. A liveaboard anchored only yards offshore heard some strange noises, so he grabbed his camera and started taking pictures. He watched on as the killer cut off Genevieve's head, one of her legs and one of her arms. 
He then watched as he cut open her stomach and disemboweled her in what seemed to be a careful and methodical manner. A second boater watched on as the killer took off his clothes after he killed Genevieve. He then took a piece of cement and started smashing what was left of her body. He crushed her head, then calmly walked into the water and started washing her blood off his body. A woman who lived close to the beach heard screaming and curiously came over to investigate. She saw a naked man walk out of the water, pick up a machete, and keep walking down the beach, where he encountered a white male who was walking out of the jungle brush on a path that led to the beach. The naked man slashed the male victim and again sadistically mutilated the body. It was no secret who this person was. Everyone gave an almost identical description of the suspect. The officers even had an idea of who he was, because he was someone who was very familiar with the St. Thomas Police Department. Officers knew who the habitual offenders on the island were, and this man was one of them. He was a 34-year-old man who was born in St. Kitts, but migrated to St. Thomas six years earlier. He worked for a short time as a bartender, but during the majority of his time on St. Thomas, he was unemployed. He was a heavy drug user who behaved erratically, and over the years his condition worsened especially when his wife gave birth to another man's child and then left him to live with her new baby's father. St. Clair Daniel was no stranger to the police. They'd arrested him at an airport earlier that year when he tried to board a plane for St. Kitts without a ticket. St. Clair Daniel, instead of acting rationally, started fighting with officers and then ran, attempting to climb an airport fence. One of the officers had to shoot him in the leg to subdue him. In 1988 alone, he'd been arrested twice. He had assaulted an unarmed man with a pickaxe and went to jail after he couldn't post a $5,000 bond. Unfortunately, he was released after less than two weeks because his arrest had been mishandled. Just over two weeks before the murders, local officers had arrested him on a charge of indecent exposure. He'd been walking around naked at a local shopping center. He was arrested, and it was clear he wasn't in his right mind and needed medical attention. When doctors treated him, they found out he had one of the highest levels of PCP, which is a hallucinogen, ever recorded in the Virgin Islands. He was higher than Mary Poppins. Because of this arrest, he was sent to St. Thomas Hospital for treatment of drug abuse, and a week later he was released from the hospital to start treatment as an outpatient. It wasn't much of a mystery as to who committed these murders because they had photos and multiple witnesses, but now the police had to find the killer and get a conviction. A manhunt began. Officers were sent to the nearby ferry docks and another was sent to the airport. Most of the officers were told to start at the scene and expand their way outward. If St. Clair stayed true to form, he would be high on some drug and not thinking clearly. One poor officer found the decapitated head of Genevieve. It had been tossed into the undergrowth just a few feet from the beach. Another officer found a bloody machete under a giant century plant, which looked like a large cactus. Officers now believe St. Clair was unarmed, but he was still considered very dangerous. As they searched through the jungle undergrowth, they heard a rustling noise. An officer drew his gun but it was only a large iguana darting out from under the heavy foliage and running away. The officers' nerves were on edge, and it's a good thing they were, because just a few minutes later, they heard footsteps coming from some nearby bushes, and soon after, a naked, 
gap-toothed man walked out of the woods with his hands in the air. His body was covered in dried blood. St. Clair's first words to officers was, Take it easy on me. Police took St. Clair to headquarters, where they read him his rights and interrogated him for five hours. Officers were interviewing witnesses, taking sworn statements, and then several were asked to identify the suspect in lineups. Three witnesses said that St. Clair looked like the killer, but they weren't 100% sure that he was the man they saw. Seven more positively identified him. I find this case interesting because of the number of people that witnessed this murder either shortly before or after St. Clair Daniel killed his victims. He absolutely couldn't get away with it because it was done so publicly and blatantly. So we know he's going to use the insanity defense. St. Clair would sign a confession, and it stated that he felt like Genevieve Lewis's dog was going to attack him. He struck at the dog with his machete, killing it, and then thinking that Genevieve would retaliate by taking out a gun and shooting him, he cut her and killed her. His second victim, Steve Cornish, was thought to be a police officer coming to arrest him, so St. Clair killed him too. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This was a fairly open and shut case by most standards. Less than 10 hours after the murder by Machete... St. Clair was charged with murder. He faced two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of mayhem, and one count of carrying a dangerous weapon. Under the advice of his public defender, he pled not guilty to all charges. The U.S. Virgin Islands had never seen grisly murders like this and never solved a case so quickly. They had witnesses. They had photographs. They had proof of the killer methodically murdering his victims. When it was time for court months later, in January of 1989, St. Clair would stand in court wearing a red and blue tracksuit, a tan t-shirt and blue sneakers. He kept quiet most of the time, hanging his head and not speaking at all. His public defender, Thomas McKelvin, entered a plea of innocent of all charges by reason of insanity. The prosecutor disagreed. He said, St. Clair exercised the ability to control his conduct. He killed... Steve and Genevieve as a consequence of his own fears, desire, and passion. He knew that what he was doing was wrong, but he did it anyway. He was rational, criminally responsible, and psychiatrists and psychologists would swear to these facts. In response to the prosecution, the public defender began his defense by sliding in the idea of voodoo. The defense lawyer claimed it wasn't rational for a man to kill two people in front of everyone. Then the killer supposedly hid the murder weapon and his clothes and walked around naked? That makes no rational sense. The lawyer then claimed that St. Clair cut the bodies up because he was afraid their jumbies or ghosts would come back and haunt him. St. Clair's lawyer admitted there was nothing rational about his actions. He agreed that the murders didn't have to happen, but he went on to say that the system in St. Thomas failed St. Clair Daniel. He claimed his client had a long-term mental illness and a clear history of crazy behavior connected to a psychosis. His lawyer claimed that he was mentally ill the day he committed those murders, and that's really all the jury needed to know. 
He brought in family members and medical experts who backed up the story that St. Clair was insane. One relative said that St. Clair claimed to be Lucifer. He said he'd been tossed down from heaven and that his missing teeth were the mark of the beast. Another said St. Clair was stone mother crazy. And a third claimed that St. Clair came running into his house and swore that a man was chasing him. He pointed out where the man was and said that the man was coming to kill him. St. Clair locked the door so the man couldn't get in. St. Clair's relatives saw no one and realized at that moment that St. Clair was crazy and seeing things. A local doctor was brought to the stand. He had treated St. Clair after he was arrested for the murders. St. Clair told him a different story than he told police. He said that he killed Genevieve Lewis because he thought she was pregnant and he was afraid her baby would come back to haunt him, so he disemboweled her to remove her seed. What? He claims to have killed Genevieve, who was 53 years old, because her baby would come back to haunt him? First of all, why would the imaginary baby haunt him if he hadn't done anything to hurt Genevieve? Second, she was 53. So he kills Genevieve and disembowels her to kill the baby. The timing and the reason here is very flawed. Am I confused? Absolutely. This makes as much sense to me as a screen door on a submarine. Most damning was probably Dr. Philip Resnick, who was an associate professor of psychiatry at Case Western Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. He was an expert in forensic psychiatry and spent time evaluating St. Clair. He stated that St. Clair was a paranoid schizophrenic. According to him, St. Clair was irrational, suspicious, and distrustful of others. He might have believed that he was Jesus Christ, but he could still understand a TV show. He said that St. Clair had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic years ago, and that it wasn't something that was curable. Another psychiatrist said St. Clair's mental history revealed signs of suffering from an increasingly severe psychosis. The first signs had begun ten years earlier but weren't recognized. He said St. Clair's behavior at trial was almost catatonic, which is consistent with schizophrenia. The prosecution brought a psychiatrist who practiced in the Virgin Islands in Puerto Rico. His specialty was transcultural psychiatry. He labeled the defendant's mutilation and decapitation of the two victims as pure voodoo. He explained that voodoo was a beautiful and a very tough religion with active branches throughout the Caribbean especially in places like Haiti, Nevis, Anguilla, and St. Kitts, which is where St. Clair was raised. People who believe in voodoo fear becoming zombies or jumbies. They believe that the body of someone who just died an unnatural death immediately threatens the living. It doesn't matter whether or not they were responsible for the person's death. Voodooists believe that a petit vonage, or small angel, hovers over the body for seven days, during which time a body is capable of becoming a jumbi. To prevent this from happening, the head has to be cut off and destroyed. The psychiatrist claimed that St. Clair Daniel was just following the rituals of voodoo as he was taught them. This meant he wasn't crazy. Another psychiatrist from Missouri testified that St. Clair Daniel did have mental health problems, but the murders were not a consequence of a mental illness. This psychiatrist believed that St. Clair knew right from wrong and that his actions after the murder were consistent with being sane. He did, after all, attempt to wash off the blood and then hide to avoid being caught. 
A third person, a clinical psychologist from Atlanta, examined St. Clair after he was arrested. He administered a Rorschach test. You've probably seen these before on TV shows. It's sometimes called the inkblot test. Usually there are a series of cards. In this case, there were 10. And these inkblots look like they've been folded in half. So one half mirrors the other. A person is asked what the inkblots look like. And then the psychologist tries to find meaning in the identification of the inkblot. St. Clair, in this case, identified each one as representing female genitalia. That's right. In every picture, he saw the mysterious bearded pink clam. I'm not sure how that information was relevant to the case in court, but it was entertaining. The psychiatrist found no evidence of psychotic delusions. Instead, he believed St. Clair had mild mental problems that became much bigger when he used drugs. The prosecuting team then gave closing remarks, saying that St. Clair intended to kill these innocent people, that he thought about it before he did it, he wasn't driven by mental illness, and as we have heard time and time again, there are plenty of people who are mentally ill, but who are also good citizens and good neighbors and don't kill people with machetes. The prosecution believed that the murder of Genevieve Lewis and Steve Cornish wasn't the result of a mental disorder. It was simply a result of St. Clair being evil. The beheading was a cultural belief and not a sign of insanity. In this case, both the defense and prosecution brought their own psychiatrists in. They seemed to argue with one another about what St. Clair's diagnosis was, or even if he really had one. The defense summed up the case by saying that St. Clair Daniel suffered from delusions. He saw innocent behavior, but misconstrued it and attacked Genevieve because he thought she was reaching for a gun in order to retaliate for his attack on her dog. The defense says this was an irrational thought, which proves that he was insane. The jury deliberated for two full days. They ruled that St. Clair was innocent by reason of insanity and the death of Steve Cornish. This scared everyone who wanted to see St. Clair put away. Luckily, in regard to the death of Genevieve Lewis, the jury ruled that St. Clair was guilty of murder in the first degree. They believed that he knew what he was doing when he killed her but they believed he was suffering from a delusion when he saw the pruning shears in the hands of Steve Cornish, which led St. Clair into believing that he was under attack. My personal thoughts are that the jury didn't really know if he was insane or not, so their best course of action was to send him to jail with no chance of parole, while also providing long-term treatment for his mental problems. He was sent to Golden Grove Adult Correctional Facility to serve a life sentence for murder. After 25 years in jail at the age of 61, he would get in trouble again after assaulting a female corrections officer. The officer was taking St. Clair to the recreational yard when he assaulted her. He had handcuffs on at the time, and once he was inside the recreational area, he attacked her, striking her several times with his handcuffs on her face and head. She got a big cut to her face and required medical attention. St. Clair was transferred to the police admin building, where he was booked and processed, and during the course of these procedures, he attacked a forensics technician by hitting him with his forearm, but this didn't cause any major injuries. St. Clair had to be medicated to calm him down after the assault. This was in 2014, so we can see he's still violent and dangerous.
Try as I might, I couldn't find much information on Steve Cornish or Genevieve Lewis or their families, other than what I presented here, and the little information I did find was thanks to Barry Bow. He wrote a true crime short story called Virgin Islands Voodoo Slaughter. Check it out if you are interested in this case. He did an excellent job with the story, which I quoted heavily. He has several short stories and books published as well. You can check out his work on barrybow.com. I will put a link in the episode description. I also used information from findagrave.com, the Virgin Island Daily News, and stthomassource.com. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review. As always, I have a couple of special thank yous to give. First, I'd like to thank Terry N. for becoming a show sponsor. Thank you so very much. Your donations will go towards improved recording equipment, and I think I'm in need of some. I'd also like to thank Florida Kate 52 who gave a very nice five-star rating and says, Interesting podcast. I came across this podcast while searching for another. I listened to a couple episodes, then I took to the road for a 2,400-mile round trip. I decided to binge a few episodes. Twisted Travel and True Crime was a most excellent travel partner. As I listened from the beginning, I loved how Sandy got better and better with time and experience. The stories are interesting, very well researched and reported. Side note, the story about Chris Lemon is my favorite. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> it was a good story. Thank you, Florida Kate. I appreciate you taking the time to rate and review. It really means a lot to me. Once again, thank you to Terry and Kate. And to all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Stay positive and keep testing negative.